This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Welcome to Beyond the Arc. The Nuggets beat the Heat 109-94 in Game 3 of the NBA Finals. And here to talk about it with me is the Ringers, Wazney Lambert. How are you doing, Waz? Kev, I'm good. I'm happy to be back on with you guys. Uh, thank you for having me have, coming on today. appreciate it, man. Denver came out with a game plan, attacked the paint, 20 and 24 points in the paint in the first quarter. Second quarter, exploit the Miami zone. Miami goes with the zone. They come out with two design plays to exploit that. Protect the paint on their end. Miami shot only 5 of 15 in the restricted area on non-tip-ins. They just couldn't get anything going there. And Nikola Jokic played a big part of that was his defense, his rim protection. But most importantly, we just watched a historic NBA Finals game. He was the first player in Finals history to log 30 points, 20 rebounds, 10 assists. He has three of them. In his playoff career, out of five in NBA history, 30, 20, 10 games, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is one of the others, and Wilt Chamberlain is the other guy. So we're getting some freaky territory here with Joker. He finished with 32 points, 21 rebounds, and 10 assists. Was it, it just felt like on Denver's way to potentially winning the finals, it seemed like one of those historic games by Joker as he cements his legacy. Well, Kev, it's almost as if he played up to a level that would have justified a third straight MVP. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, but seriously, he was um, amazing tonight, particularly in that third quarter stretch where he starts out five for five. He's doing the soundboard shuffle. He's one of the first shots was was a pin down where he comes off a screen, catches and shoots a mid range jump shot. And Van Gundy on the telecast is like they're running pin down catch and shoots for their freaking center. It's ridiculous. That and to me, that was the difference in the game. When they went up by 19 in that third quarter, that run, the Heat couldn't buy a bucket for a while. They had a little cold stretch. And Denver being Denver, a.k.a. the best unit in the NBA, their offense that is unstoppable, um, with Jokic leading the charge. And I thought he just he blew the game wide open in that third quarter from all over the place, inside, outside, he even wet a three at one point. It was just incredible to see, Kev. 
It's it's amazing how, I mean, you mentioned that shot that Van Gundy remarked about on the broadcast. I mean, he had a shot where he kind of just drove into the paint and softly floated it, like bounced a couple times off the rim. I mean, Bam Adebayo, I can't help but feel bad for the guy. He's busting he's his butt out job. there. <laughs> I mean, he's doing everything he can, and yet yeah. Joker's having these historic nights. It's just It just feels like he's the type of player that he is. There's nothing you can do, but just pray he misses it. And if he gets himself into the paint, which clearly Denver was emphasizing in that game, attack, 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 attack. I mean, like that, that guy's got the best touch in the world in that area. There's nothing you can do about Jokic, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy because I think the difference in this game also is Denver's ability to exploit mismatches on switches on their screen in action, right? So whenever a smaller guy ended up on um, Aaron Gordon, whenever a smaller guy ended up on Jokic, they ended up being able to punish it. The Heat, I think in the first half, they came out um, with a great game plan. They weren't sort of forcing the Jimmy stuff too much. They were just, they they were making Denver honor the, the shooters and the dribblers on the pick and roll and on the off ball action. And these guys were scared to go under every single screen, playing every single dude on the heat as if he's like Mark Price or something. <laughs> um, and But, but th- because they played them so honestly, the Heat were able to exploit a lot of a lot of the holes in Denver's defense off of their screen in action. I, I was really impressed by their ability to spread Denver out and get some legitimately great looks, right? Denver ended up pushing it to a five-point cushion. I'm like, man, Miami's got to feel great about themselves going into the third quarter, knowing they've been a second-half comeback team all season. They got to feel good about what's going on. But then Jokic, of course, just kind of slammed the door shut on their dreams tonight. For sure. I mean, you're right. I mean, like Miami getting at the five, it's like, okay. I mean, they're not shooting the ball well at all. They're like none of their stars, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, they're not having big offensive games. And and then everything just, you know, fell off for them in that third quarter into the fourth. Jamal Murray finishes with 30 himself. You know, Christian Brown, I mean, an NBA rookie. It's not often you see somebody on this stage having a game like him. He he finishes the game with 15 points. He plays 76 games this regular season. And that feels like, I mean, I'm just thinking about it during the game. Like Steve Kerr with the Warriors. He's like, I can't trust Moses Moody. I yeah. can't trust Kaminga. But yep. Michael Malone throughout the entire season plays Brown 76 games, not heavy minutes, but 76 reps out there on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, he was just prepared for this moment with the cutting, with the good decision-making with his passing. And I mean, that dude, I mean, all year we've seen that, you know, watching the Nuggets, this guy defends like crazy as well. I, I was, I was amazed by him. And I know you, I know you're a big Christian Brown fan. I've, I've been on Christian Brown <laughs> since about January. Honestly, uh, there was like a little lull in the season where the Nuggets weren't defending well. And I'm like, I, I seen Christian Brown, get some nice little minutes in the first half and I'm like this kid is huge plays with an incredible motor uh this is exactly what you need on the defensive end right he's not a complete zero on offense he slots perfectly into what they're trying to do and I thought tonight what I loved about it again the motor where this guy's just not stopping he's diving after loose balls uh Michael Malone is is saying look go out there guard Jimmy Butler the best perimeter player on the team I trust you and most importantly Kev 
at many points, he was the zone buster. Coming in on cuts, or he would do a pump fake, attack the paint, draw a defender, and then dish out to somebody. He was the difference. Of course, Jokic gets a lot of attention whenever he touches the ball um, against the zone. But in, in his action and his movement sort of broke stuff open. And I think Spolstra is going to have to think twice about going back to that zone um, in future contests. I mean, so you think you think that Miami zone, it's had success, you know, throughout the entire postseason, through the whole season, and in the finals it has through games one and two. But game three, what you saw from Denver and those limited opportunities, like I said, you know, Miami comes out with the zone in the second quarter. Denver's ready. They got two plays ready to go and create open shot opportunities. Your assessment watching game three is that at this point, with the time off between games two and three, the Nuggets feel like a prepared team for that press falling back into the zone that the Heat have used so effectively? Yeah, I, I never really bought into the idea that the zone was going to really stop anything. I thought in game two what it did effectively was because Miami wasn't playing from behind and was sort of playing with a lead, what it did effectively was that it slowed Denver down, right? Yeah. Like the yep. team that's chasing now has to, they don't get into their offense until 12 seconds or left in the shot clock. Today, when Denver's up and it's like, we want to take our time anyway, there's too much shooting on this team, too much size to sort of see over the zone defense and too much elite passing with Nikola Jokic to actually make this thing work in the way that you to, that you ultimately wanted to. You can have those moments where you disrupt the rhythm of Denver's offense. And let's face it, Denver is a rhythm offense, right? They can bludgeon you with the one-on-one -on -one isolation stuff with guys like Jokic and Murray and even Aaron Gordon when he's facing a mismatch. But what they do is rhythm and timing, and the zone d does a great job of disrupting that. Uh, but it's not something that an offense this sophisticated and has this many ways. It's like a Swiss Army knife, Kev. That many ways to kill you. You know, I'll kill you with a knife or a bottle opener. You know, <laughs> like they have so many ways to take you out. Ultimately, I don't think the zone is the answer. Was when we're back after the break, we'll talk about some potential adjustments for the Heat and also the Denver Nuggets. I still feel like with Michael Porter Jr., there's still ways for them to be even better. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Beyond the Arc. I'm still here with Wozniak Lambre from The Ringer. We're going to be talking now, looking ahead to Game 4, which is on Friday. Only one, one day off between Games 3 and 4 in the NBA Finals. Woz, you were just saying how the Nuggets just completely dismantled the heat zone in Game 3. In Game 4, you know, I think for Miami... For them, like a, their lack of success on offense, I think a lot of it does start with their lack of success on defense. They get to get stops, create more early offensive opportunities. But with that said, you know, Butler 11 of 24 in the game, Bam Adebayo 7 of 21, Gabe Vincent 2 of 10. 
Like these guys just really struggled offensively for the Heat against the Nuggets. Do you feel like in that game three, you know, there's anything that the Heat can look at and say, hey, this is just a cold shooting night, you know, come back with the same game plan? Or is there anything you would like to see Spolster do in game four and beyond? So I said after game one, I thought the adjustment for them should be, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm Nostradamus or something out here, uh, Kev, but I thought it would be their shooting. One, making Jokic play out on the floor more, and two, their off-ball stuff. Um, they, they, If you haven't played against that all season, it's really them and Golden State, honestly, who does this stuff with the multiple shooters, screening and cutting for each other, you know, around the ball, not just on ball screening, but off ball screening and movement I thought that would sort of unlock a lot of things for them and we saw all of the we all saw the the miscommunications between these guys with Duncan Robinson actions uh not remembering who was guarding who on the on the switches oftentimes when they set the doubled screen guys were getting confused I thought that's where they would create their opportunities and of course we thought Jimmy Butler would have to have a more pronounced sort of imprint on the game I think going into the next game I thought they got some pretty good looks out of this. I thought Jimmy mostly got some good looks. He he absolutely abused everybody who wasn't Gordon or MPJ on defense, and his eyes lit up. And when they when he drew help, he was firing that ball out. They would spray it around, and when they were getting good shots, I thought they. They ran good offense. The Heat run their stuff. They executed. They run it hard and with purpose on every play. You're never going to see a guy go set a screen and barely touch the guy. They're getting bodies on men, and they're creating space for, for their dudes. I just think they didn't make their shots. And, you know, shouts to my man Seth Partner. I think the, the adjustment is going to be play better. <laughs> I mean, play better definitely it's a given for Miami. I think also potentially getting new bodies on the floor. I mean, throughout the entire playoff run, they've been reliant on different role players to step up, whether it's Gabe Vincent or whether it's Caleb Mar. Martin or Max Struess or Duncan Robinson and all those types of guys or Kyle Lowry having good games himself. Mm-hmm. Tyler Hero, uh, I think Hero with his pull-up shooting ability out of yeah. pick and rolls, coming off of handoffs with Bam Adebayo, somebody who can reliably create quality shots off the dribble if Vincent's not feeling it and if Martin's not feeling it. Just having that other option, especially with Butler, you know, he just he hasn't had a massive game since game two against Boston. I mean, like I don't know how much that injury is bothering him or he's just hitting a wall or what, but he just hasn't been the same guy that we saw earlier in the postseason. Getting Hero back, uh, that to me that that feels like the big thing that the Heat need in this series to really, you know, match the level of the the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, I think Hero will help again. Like I said, another guy who's a threat to shoot it off the dribble, um, whether it's on a screen or even off of a pick and roll or even in the one-on-one, I I think that's huge. But again, I think with Jimmy, I I like what I saw from him tonight. Um, Yeah, me too. He was attacking the smaller defenders with a lot of confidence and a lot of force, and it seemed like he had a little bit of explosion and some lift against those matchups, right? I think obviously... People don't give Jokic his credit for this, but, like, he's a huge deterrent when guys get all the way to the basket. Like, trying to shoot over him is tough. And I think Jimmy, smartly, when Yoke was there, he passed out and allowed other guys to sort of create space with the with the ball movement and, and get some good looks up there. But, yeah, um, 
Tyler, excuse me, Tyler Hero is going to be a, a great addition if he's able to come back with that hand. I don't know what his conditioning is going to be like. Of course, we know traditionally he hasn't exactly been Gary Payton out there on defense. <laughs> that's um, for sure. So that's always a concern. <laughs> but I think I truly do think Miami, if they're going to make a series out of this, if they're going to threaten to win the championship, Kev, they got to make shots. And that's what Tyler Hero does. The one thing I'm afraid of, if I'm a Heat fan right now, Michael Porter Jr.'s do was can't make a shot. Can't I mean, make this, a sh- the guy. The guy cannot yeah. make a shot. This guy doesn't stay this cold for that long. It just doesn't happen. If you look at his numbers over the course of the season, he'll have stretches where he hits, you know, 25 percent of threes, but. I mean, I, unless there's something injury-wise that we don't know about or fatigue-wise affecting him, I, I just I just don't think Porter's going to have a fourth terrible game. I mean, he has stunk. Uh, and if, <laughs> if Porter goes off and has a big night, I yeah, mean, it's, 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 I mean, good night to the Miami Heat. Yeah, and it's not even about him making his one-on-one isolation shot creation stuff. It's making spot-up yes. threes, man. Spot-up twos. These shots are catch and shoot. Usually his bread and butter that he's been flubbing so far in the series and yeah he's probably due but you know again man when when you're able to create offense for yourself around what Jokic and Murray are doing Murray who we haven't even talked about oh just a whole hump 34 10 and 10 <laughs> you know just just and, and making day. hustle plays too man hustle plays all of I it. mean he's that rebound right yeah. remember that rebound of the third quarter where he chased down his own miss man incredible yeah and so you know Michael Porter Jr. is able to create off of that two-man action, which attracts so much uh, attention from the defense, I think he'll be able to have at least a halfway decent game. Give me a three for seven. I mean, good Lord. Uh, last question was, series prediction rest of the way. Nuggets up 2-1 right now. How is this going to end? I picked the Nuggets in six before the series because of my respect and admiration for the culture. In mm-hmm. Miami, I do think they have an ability. They will have an ability to take another game off of these guys. Uh, as you've seen in certain moments of this game, Denver has had, you know, the moments of letting their guard down and focus down. You know, a part of me still doesn't think they have the ultimate respect of Miami right now, <laughs> and so I think. There'll, there'll be lapses in focus and the Heat don't quit. We saw that at the end of the game. I'm like, all right, it's two, two and a half minutes left. My, my lady's like, uh, you, are you sure the game's over? Don't you remember game six in, in, in Miami? I'm like, God, it, it's over. Then it's a bunch, couple of threes, almost a flagrant. Like, we've seen these lapses in focus from Denver. So I do think... Denver is going to spot them another game, but ultimately, man, this thing is going to end in six. Denver is the team of destiny, as I so smartly and geniusly (laughs) called back in October, Kev. The Nuggets will be hoisting the Larry O'Brien trophy. Is it still called Larry O'Brien, by the way? <laughs> yeah, the NBA Finals Larry O'Brien trophy. They redesigned okay. it, but it's still, it's still Larry. Still yeah, we naming man. new, we making up new awards. We're renaming other awards. I, I you know, I, I'm forgetting. Well, well, as I thought, you said you weren't Nostradamus, but here we are. I have him <laughs> as my guest here on Beyond the Arc. Thank you for joining me, Waz. Of course, anytime, big dog. 
Welcome back to Beyond the Arc. A couple hours before the finals began on Wednesday night, we got some breaking news. Chris Haynes said that Chris Paul will be waived by the Phoenix Suns. That was later clarified by FanDuel's own Sham Sharania, who said that it's possible he could be waived. He might be waived and re-signed to the Suns to the league minimum, or he could be stretched, which would mean that he would have to sign with another team, or he could even be traded. Uh, the funny thing now for the Suns is they're in a situation with their new owner. He makes a big trade for Kevin Durant. He hires a new coach. And now Chris Paul, a guy who did help create this situation that they're in now, they could be changing everything. And I think for the Chris Paul side of things, let's talk about that first here. If he's waived or stretched, my sources say the teams to watch out for are the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Spurs. All three of those teams in dramatically different situations. I think the Clippers are the best basketball fit of those three. Because if he goes to the Lakers, you're taking the ball out of LeBron James's hands. And the Spurs, a younger team, it would be cool to see him with Wemby, but I don't think they're quite ready for championship contention. The teams I'm intrigued by, but there's no indication of actual interest. The Sixers, if James Harden were to leave, the Celtics get them a point guard next to Tatum and Brown, and then the Bucks somebody to help out Drew Holiday in that backcourt and create easy shots for Giannis. We'll see what happens there. We could see some point guard musical chairs this offseason. What does this mean for the Suns, though? That's the fascinating thing above all else here because for Phoenix now, we've heard multiple reports. Chris Haynes says they will waive him. Sham says that all the options are on the table. And then Woj also followed up saying that they could trade Chris Paul or they could trade DeAndre Ayton. The Suns' new head coach, Frank Vogel, just raved about Ayton at his press conference. I don't buy it. I think Ayton is very much on the table. My expectation here for the Suns here, though, is they're trying to go for something big, and that, that's why they're leaving these paths open. Maybe they do wave him. Maybe they stretch him. Maybe they trade him. I think they're going to be going for Kyrie Irving, who's the name they've been connected to a lot, or James Harden, the Suns are more of a dark horse candidate for him if Houston doesn't work out, if he decides to leave Philadelphia. And that would also be an interesting thing for a Chris Paul potential destination. Maybe you trade Chris Paul for James Harden. But either way, now for Phoenix, they're looking for upgrades. They could trade Aiton. And if they do end up stretching Chris Paul or sign and trading him, or trading Aiton in a sign and trade situation for one of those guys like a James Harden or a Kyrie Irving, that would hard cap them because under the salary cap, if you do a sign and trade, you are hard capped. That would mean they're reliant on their mid-level exception and league minimum exceptions in order to build out their roster around Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and whatever else they have on their team. They only have like six guys under guaranteed contracts right now. It's not a lot on that team. They got to fill it out with quality talent, but right now it's unknown. We just don't know every detail here with Chris Paul, but the bottom line is Chris Paul is going to have some options, maybe with those teams out West and then the Suns themselves, they're looking to do something big this offseason. They're trying to create flexibility because they're going for it all. And that was clear as soon as they traded Mikel Bridges and Cam Johnson and every draft pick imaginable to go get Kevin Durant. There is a whole bunch of other stuff going on this offseason, though. So to talk about that, let's take some questions from our Beyond the Arc listeners. Big Nurse was hired as head coach of the Sixers. Do you think this is a good hire? And what does it mean for Joel Embiid? I like the Nick Nurse hire. Uh, I think for Philadelphia, it makes a lot of sense. He's a micromanager type, someone who's going to make a heck of a lot more adjustments than Doc Rivers did over the course of series. I mean, ultimately, though, I think 
for Philadelphia here, uh, it, it's what I think about the Nick Nurse hire is going to have to do with what Daryl Morey does this offseason. I wrote a column on The Ringer recently about this, and I kind of stated in there with Nurse that we saw him have great success with Kawhi Leonard. He has not been able to replicate that success since, but he also hasn't had a player anywhere as good as Joel Embiid. So how is he going to use Embiid? That might have to do with the roster, but I think regardless of what moves Maury makes, regardless of whether James Harden comes back, you gotta, I mean, he, this guy just won an MVP and I still think there's more levels to his game. You can use him a little bit more like Giannis, you know, more rebounds, you know, go coast to coast, more stuff from the perimeter, downhill attacks. You know, we're watching Denver right now in the finals with Jokic. You can put Embiid on more spots all over the floor, more off screen actions, more pick and roll. And obviously Embiid, lacks Giannis's verticality. He definitely lacks Jokic's playmaking ability. Jokic is on another level from anybody else on the planet. So Embiid can't do what they do, but I think Nick Nurse should bring in some wrinkles that incorporate some of the Giannis and Jokic style stuff. And I mean, ultimately though, like I said, what is the roster going to look like? Is James Harden going to go to Houston or to Phoenix? Is he going to come back? Would he be willing to adapt in this type of system? Probably not. The chances are, if he does, the offense just looks more of the same as it did under Doc Rivers. Is is Daryl Morey targeting movement shooters? Uh, we don't know yet. Um, still a lot to determine. And funny thing is, with Philly, is now suddenly what they do could be roped in with what Phoenix ends up doing. Uh, let's take our next question. Hey, Kevin, what do you think the Blazers should do this offseason? I mean, I think they are going to shop the heck out of that number three pick. As we know right now, they're going to look around, see what's out there. But I'm skeptical that there's going to be any deal available that makes any sense to trade the number three pick in the draft where you could end up with Scoot Henderson, you know, a downhill attacking point guard, a potential leader in the future, a guy who could replace Damian Lillard sooner or later, or Brandon Miller out of Alabama, a tall, you know, six foot nine forward who can score, who can play make, who can defend, chase down blocks. Like they got two really great options there. And not to mention the Thompson twins. There's a lot of guys in that number three pick that would make sense for Portland to pair with Shade and Sharp. I mean, personally, I think they should be going young. I would look for trades for Damian Lillard and try to get what's best available, then build a youth movement here. The interesting thing is they just added to their organization Pooh Jetter, who has played for the G League Ignite last year, longtime point guard, played around the world. He said before he was hired on the Draft Deeper podcast that he said everybody should have scoot number two. So you got Pooh Jetter, who's just hired by the Blazers in a front office slash coaching role, and he's saying Scoot's the number two prospects. And to be fair, he's not just saying that because he was teammates with Scoot last year in the G League. He's saying that as somebody who also is longtime friends with Brandon Miller. He said so himself in that podcast. So you get Mike Schmitz, who is previously with ESPN and Draft Express, now second in command in that front office, who had great interviews with Scoot Henderson last year, really showed off Scoot's basketball IQ and his desire to be great. They worked out Scoot at number three. It's, it's interesting to see here because if you draft Scoot at three, if Brandon Miller goes two to Charlotte, which, I mean, we don't know if that's going to end up happening. It seems like, you know, things are pointing in that direction, but still a long way to go. But if Miller goes two and Scoot goes three to Portland, what does that mean for Damian Lillard? I'd be looking to move him. CJ McCollum said on first take on Wednesday morning that he thinks if he were a betting man that it's the end of the days for Damian Lillard in Portland. I'm not so sure there. 
I think for Portland, there's incentive for them to take whoever it is at number three, whether it's Miller or whether it's Scoot, and just spin it forward with Damian Lillard and try to move Anthony Simons. And if you flip Simons, you get Scoot and Damian Lillard as your current and you know past point guard with Dame and then your future point guard with Scoot and turn Simons into a wing or a better center than Yusuf Nurkic who can't move his feet anymore. Like They need to support Damian Lillard if they keep him. And if you know what? It doesn't work. Then you can make a trade, and at that point, you move on from Damian Lillard sometime midseason for a massive haul. Uh, so I expect them to go somewhere in the middle um, and try to play both sides, but I'd trade Damian Lillard this offseason. Let's go to the next question. First time, long time here. You said how P.J. Washington is an underrated free agent, but he's restricted, right? So the Hornets can match any offer for him. So in this upcoming class, who do you think is the most overlooked, unrestricted free agent? You're right. I really do like P.J. Washington, but Charlotte can end up matching on him, and I think they, they probably should. I think he could help a lot of contenders. So if you're the Hornets, why not keep him? He's a great fit with Mark Williams there. He works with LaMelo. I would want to do that if I'm Charlotte, but we'll see. As for the unrestricted free agents, the guy that I'm looking at is kind of similar-ish to P.J. Washington in terms of what he could offer a team. I'm thinking about Nas Reed from the Minnesota Timberwolves. In 12 games this season, when he played over 25 minutes, he averaged 20.5 points, 9.1 rebounds, 1.6 blocks, 1.2 steals, and he was a plus 4.1 average in those games. So that's a small sample, but he was crushing off the bench as well. We saw it in the playoffs. Anytime he was asked to replace Rudy Gobert or Carl Anthony Towns when those guys missed time, he came through. I think Nas Reed, he can space the floor from three. He can attack off the bounce. And granted, he's not like a great defender. He's tough. He's solid. He can crash the boards. He's 264 pounds, so he can take on interior guys. If I'm the Spurs, I'm going after a Nas Reed because you're taking Victor Wembenyama with the number one pick. I don't want Wemby battling against Jokic or Embiid, or any of these real beefy centers, even a Steven Adams type over the course of the season. I want Wemby in that help role. So I'm trying to target an interior center who can help him out. And Nas Reed makes a lot of sense because he's he works on offense and on defense. He can kind of fill the gaps where Wemby's going to need it early in his career. Uh, thank you for your questions today. We'll do this again in the coming weeks. Uh, we'll be back after the break talking about the NBA drafts. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. 
Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back to Beyond the Art. Today, we're talking NBA drafts with some of the home run swings, these high-risk, high-reward players that you see teams willing to take. Maybe their GM ends up losing their job because they whiff. Maybe they end up with the next superstar. Tate, is there a player who comes to mind first to you that is the the big home run swing of this year's draft class? Yeah, I feel like the Warriors are the kings of this where they have like the ESPN top 100 list, like just printed up somewhere like a big board <laughs> and they see guys that have fallen and they're like, how is this guy the number one player? But now he is not in our ter- top 30 on the James draft. James Wiseman. Right. Like, oh, granted, he goes the top pick, but he was number one in this class. Of course. And a guy who was number one in his class by most uh, assessments is Gigi Jackson. Who decided to uh, you know bump up a year, enrolls at South Carolina, everyone stays in state at South Carolina, decommitted from North Carolina. But the USA basketball conversation around Gigi uh, last year was high. I mean, everybody was high on this kid. They're saying he's going to be one of the most important prospects in quite a while for USA basketball. He had a detrimental first year in college basketball. I mean, that's probably to put it lightly. I remember specifically the Brandon Miller game, right? It just felt like these are two tiers of players. But if you do believe in the physical frame, if you do believe that he is young and that you can develop him and put him in a good system, there's a world in which Gigi Jackson looks like the biggest home run of this draft, especially if you get him late, you know, in the in the 20 range, you know, 18, 19, 20 range. I think that could be a lot of upside for someone. I mean, he's 6'9". He's got a, got a great NBA body and right. length and size and, you know, strong frame. He can handle. He's fluid off the dribble. It's just he's just not good at basketball right now. That, right. That's the thing, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's jarring to go into that level. It can be jarring to go into a certain level of like organized basketball after at, skipping at, at, the year, like Tate said, right? Yeah, and and I think you know this this term has kind of become popular in like draft circles, uh, draft discussion circles in the past couple of years, which is this idea of pre-drafting, which is taking guys before they show you their sort of like their resume, their full mm-hmm. resume. And you'll see this just with a lot of these weird year guys, these like freshman guys that just didn't have great years. And then you draft them and you get them in there. You, you bet on the talent. You were talking about the Warriors. Honestly, feel like the Lakers have kind of taken that strategy and like right. Max Christie. and stuff. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, we're going to go and just accrue these like top 100 RSCI guys. But I think GG, yeah, if you're going to take a pre-draft, yeah, I mean, he's somebody that would definitely be worth taking a swing on. And he passes the airport test. Like, if we all walked in a room and you saw a bunch of NBA prospects, you're like, who's that guy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Gigi Jackson. I think the Nets with their back-to-back picks in the first round, like, they're the type of team that's perfect to me. Is Or, like, the Utah Jazz, they have mm-hmm. two firsts. These teams with multiple firsts, why not take a big swing with it? Like Because, like, with him, we saw the flashes in high school. He didn't do well at South Carolina. It's a difficult situation, up and down year. He's on Instagram Live blaming coaches for not getting touches. There's some flags there that NBA teams are going to have to take a look at through their interview process and say, hey, is this actually somebody that we do want to gamble on? Is this a person, you know, is, is this somebody that was worth it for us? But if you have two firsts, like you said, Tate. If, Even like, if, like, the Magic decide not? to trade back, something like yes, that. Yeah. Like, like, why not? Uh, who comes to mind to you, Kyle, as home run swings in this year's class? Um, it's it's a similar thing. Like we were talking about the I, the weird weird year is kind of the the branding that I've just been putting on it lately. And I feel like both of the Thompsons are kind of lurk. Both of the Thompson twins are kind of lurking in that range where you'll hear people talking. The shooting is obviously the big question. Both of these guys are 
Uh, they are, you're going to have to either rebuild or completely reshape their mechanics. Just figure out how to give the pluses and they're going to, they're both going to be elite athletes. I've talked about how all men next year might be the best perimeter athlete in the league from day one. He's that type of stratospheric athletic talent and he can get into the pain and give you playmaking. I, I just think that if you're going to take, if you looked at the board and you said who could like ascend up this board five years from now and we just kind of overlook their their gifts, I feel like Amin has some of that, but there's a lot of guys in this draft like this. Like Dariq Whitehead had a weird year. Nick mm-hmm. Smith had a weird year at Arkansas. Um, there there are a few different places. If you have the picks and you have the stomach for it, you could have a bet that could pay out big with it, talent. With Amin and Asar Thompson, like you mentioned their jumpers, that they always need work. They've been hard at work. Like They did revise their mechanics over the season with the OTE, and yet their numbers are still underwhelming. Let's say they are never, you know, 38, 37, 39, 40%, whatever it might be, three-point shooters. And they're always going to be guys who hover between 26%, maybe a career-high 32%. Do do they still have superstar level potential with all the other qualities that they have, Kyle, uh, or do they need that jumper to be better in order to reach that level? I think it's just got to get to the point where it's passable because I, do, I think if you bet on like how long their athleticism is, is that be a, a passable thing, number like 31, 32, 31, 32 would be I'm raising my hands to the right. Lord. That like would we be like, one. yeah, yeah we, we did it. So we it's more it. like 25 percent is yeah, where you're a little, you can't keep them out there. I mean, it's got to be it's got to be like. Tybal level like it's got to be like it, you got to be able to stay on the floor and if he can stay on an NBA floor I think these guys can yeah but even then Tybal was losing minutes in the Sixers rotation it's true Blazers well, fans love him though they do they actually love him. he also started <laughs> shooting threes suddenly well all of a sudden he also just seems like a great locker room guy as yeah. soon as he got to Portland he's like on the plane he's like listen to Dame Lillard rap you know what I mean <laughs> of, if the Thompson twins are good teammates that'll also help yeah. string it out yeah. a lot of good food out in Portland I think that would inspire anybody to shoot better honestly I've never yeah. been out there you should you'd I, love, love it you I'd gotta go to yeah. someday you know, maybe we'll see uh, <laughs> Portland tourism by FanDuel yeah. uh, Cam Whitmore is the guy who comes to mind to me as one of the home run swings this year he's 6'6 235 pounds he just jumps out of the gym one of those types of athletes we saw him at p3 just breaking you know able to exceed the high jump he's he is an amazing 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 athlete he explodes at the rim the question with him is very similar to the thompson twins what level does his jump shot reach uh, he's been in a below average shooter throughout you know including in high school and, and his freshman year at villanova but the flashes of handle with his size and strength. I feel like he's somebody that at least you want to bet on. The floor for him is like, okay, he's going to be a a good defensive player, versatile. He's going to be a guy who can attack closeouts, who can be used as a as like a screener type and an offense where you can play inverted styles. You can plug him into a Bruce Brown-esque role. I think he's at least going to be a, a competent shooter. But the question was with him is, does he become a knockdown guy? or a very good shooter. If that happens, that's where suddenly that combination of physical strengths with fluid handling ability could manifest into a potential superstar level player. Yeah. And I feel like Cam Whitmore is my number one guy that I feel as the draft gets closer and closer, we're going to see his name kind of climbing, you know, where we get already feel it. It's right. Four or five, right. Even the Pistons at five feels like a Cam Whitmore type team. Um, so I just feel like his name and maybe there's some, you know, Portland floats out there. We like Cam Whitmore at three or whatever it may be. I think he's that type of player, that type of prospect. And I think he has the right people around him in that Villanova circle. 
So I, I really like Cam Whitmore. I think there's a lot of upside there. I mean, he's going to be a top guy in the draft. So, I mean, like, you know, the, there's probably a floor with him compared to some other prospects. Is there anybody else that we that haven't mentioned that you think comes in? I have to throw this out. You mentioned the weird year. Uh, how about weird years? Uh, plural. There has been some very weird years for a guy, Amani Bates. But Amani Bates is someone that I, we all remember the cover, the next LeBron, right? I mean, there was a lot of pressure put on him. He goes to Memphis. Jalen Duran ended up being the best prospect on that team, and Penny and him kind of butted heads more than a few times. He ends up transferring back home. He has a solid year, has some good games. He still has that firepower to just go off for 30 points. I don't like his ability to get separation. I think that's still a question. He also physically doesn't really stand out. Like a, I think a lot of people projected him to be physically more imposing than he is. But I still think when you have a guy like Amani Bates and you have a second round pick or, you know, maybe late first round, you take a flyer on a guy and say, who knows, maybe he can be what he was supposed to be. Yeah. Do you have any belief in him? No, I don't. <laughs> uh, I mean, at this point, I, I just kind of feel like he's like a six, seven, six, eight bones Highland. I, I, mm. I just I, I Highland's a good comp. I like I'll that. put it this way. I just I'm, I'm skeptical. I worry about and this is the thing we go through with guys like GD. We go through with guys like Imani is like the more that they kind of gravitate towards these situations that don't have total accountability. Um, it tends to not go well, you know, and you just pray that once they get into a situation where they are held accountable, they change kind of the way they play. Shane Sharp was a case of that happening this past year. Michael Porter Jr., an example right. of a guy who I said he should just be on his knees thanking the Lord every day that he met Nikola Jokic and ended up with him because otherwise I don't know what would have happened to his his play style. So it's different for every player. I worry about Imani Bates. I'm not feeling super confident about it. We talked about it earlier in the year in the draft show. And I and I like he's a I love to watch him play just because the way he just jack shots up. He just <laughs> does not care at all. NBA coaches are not going to feel the same way. No. And, and guys have <laughs> not gotten drafted because they take shots away from other guys. And I feel like Imani Bates, there's only so many FGAs that are available for a team. And when you know a guy is planning to take 20 shots and he also doesn't have the talent to <laughs> 20 do that, shots in 12 minutes. Right, right. It's like, get this guy out of here. You know, and I feel like that's the real red flag for Imani well, Bates. And, that, and that's where he's going to have to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, if he does stay in this draft and he gets selected in the second round or he's an undrafted guy, I hope he goes to a situation like you're saying, Kyle, where they embrace him and say, hey, we want you to be you, but these are the things that you're going to have to do to earn minutes to succeed in the NBA and make tens of millions of dollars. This is what you got to do. Can you at least play some defense? Can you at least be willing to pass the ball? Can you at least just spot up from behind the arc and not, and not pout if you don't get touches? If he does those things, I mean, we know Imani can shoot it. He's got size. He's got skill. He's good intensity. Let's see how he can hone that in the NBA. He could very well end up the steal of the draft, but I'm skeptical. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical, but I like Jerry West and the Clippers. You know what I mean? I like Pat Riley in the Heat. I think he needs kind of yeah. like an OG kind of culture team. This is that what can I'm saying. Good spot. Accountability. There are mm -hmm. guys like that who I like. Demarcus Cousins was a guy who had a bad reputation coming into college, and if there are certain guys that if they get into a situation, they respect. They can change. I mean, I hope it happens for money. Like you said, the shooting talent is there, like the creation ability. He's, it's not just that also. He has a lot to expand, like in terms of his body and how he plays. And at, right now, I think he profiles as like your second unit guy who comes in and has a big appetite for scoring. Big but spark. I but I'm not going to lean on him heavily with whatever I'm trying to do in my attack. Well, I'm rooting for Imani Bates. I am. I want him to. I want him to just flourish in the NBA. But we'll see what happens. Kyle, Tate, thank you for joining me. Thanks, KFC.
Welcome back to Beyond the Arc. Today we're talking about the NBA draft in the class's most versatile defenders. Victor Wembanyama is going to go number one. Brandon Miller, a top pick as well, could go number two or three. Versatile defender. But there's a lot of guys throughout first round, potential lottery guys, late first, second round picks that, you know, they end up panning out in the NBA and getting consistent opportunities because of their defense. Kyle, who comes to mind to you first as one of the draft class's most versatile defenders? So many to pick from. So many to pick from. And such an important skill set to stay on the floor in the playoffs because if you're getting picked on, you're going to sit down very frequently. There's a, there's one quickly I want to mention, which is Andre Jackson, who was on the national championship team for UConn. He took on tough assignments. He gives you a lot of – he also is like a high assist to usage guy, one of the highest marks in the country. He gives you a lot of assists. Can You know, he's great. Uh, one of the higher upside guys, though, that is probably – he's projected Projected in the top ten is Houston freshman uh, Jarris Walker. Walker's six foot eight. And he measured at a, a seven foot two wingspan. Um, he's built a lot like Patrick Williams, who came out of Florida State. In fact, uh, I've said this to you before, Kevin, but he has. It made me wonder why he he fits the prototype of a Florida State type guy. Like I, I wondered why he didn't go there, but. Uh, one a steal a game and 1.3 blocks per game, and that was 91st and 93rd percentile in the country. He's a guy who can move his hips really well, and in, in a league that is like spread out, you know, we kind of had this movement towards lanky guys that could fly around, and I think we've shifted more towards, hey, you know, strength is in fashion. It's mm. important. It's nice to have strong guys that can move. Walker fits that mold, and I think he has enough offensive upside that I think he could become a winning player in the NBA. Yeah, and he was in a winning culture at Houston. I love Samson. I think he did a great job with him by giving him opportunity also didn't have to worry about being a mainstay of the offense but as the year went on there were times where you're like walker's maybe the most dependable player on the court for this team which speaks to what he can do eventually in the nba and i like him on the defensive end because of that force and that size that he has i mean and like he's just so competitive i guess that's probably one of the reasons why he went to houston that's a team that competes hard on defense and and walker coming out of img he's just one of those guys he you don't need to activate him or turn him on. He's always on on the defensive end. And he can play in a system, right? I mean, that's the other yes. thing. It's almost a good sign if you go to Houston because if you if you agree to go to Houston, what you're, what you're signing up for, you know what you're signing up right. for. So it's like if you go there, you're telling me that you're a competitive. It's very similar to Florida State, honestly, in that way that like – that just says something about him. I think it's another check in the box for him. Personality I mean, I, I, when I was uh, in Houston interviewing, you know, Brandon Miller from the Alabama side and then various Houston players, Marcus Sasser, Terrence Arsenault, a freshman wing for that team. I asked Arsenault, like, why, why Houston? He's like, you know, because we compete here. You know, we, I want to learn how to be a professional. And, and like that's this common thread that you hear from a lot of the guys there. And with Jarris Walker, he's got defense as a foundation. That's why he's going to be a lottery pick. But offensively, he actually, you know, I think in high school, he was taking the pull-up jumpers. He handled the ball a bit more. His offensive role was more expansive than what we saw at Houston. But at-rim finishing Tate, he's a connective piece as a passer. I think Walker has a lot of qualities that are going to make him a versatile piece on the offensive end, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what you tell yourself, right? The floor is he's going to be a great defender and a nice rotation piece in the playoffs. But the ceiling is he could turn into a guy who could be a secondary, potentially primary option if all things go according to plan. And he develops into the player that he possibly could be. And he's young. He's a freshman, right? So, I mean, that's always something that NBA GMs love. We love potential. We don't always like players, but we love potential. <laughs> I have Walker on my board at number eight, and a player that has surpassed them at number seven is Taylor Hendricks out of UCF. Hendricks, another freshman, not as highly ranked out of high school as Jarris Walker was, but Hendricks very similarly on the defensive end of the floor. 
He's somebody who can block shots for you. He's a good help defender inside. I could see him in a situation where you have him playing next to a, a big true center. He's playing the four for you as your big, long, rangy help defender. He can switch and defend multiple positions. There's a, there's a, foundation, a foundation for Hendricks to be one of those versatile pieces on your defense, and you look around the playoffs, I mean, the Aaron Gordon types, you know, those guys are highly valuable to constructing a positive overall defense for your team, and I think Hendricks checks those boxes, and plus he's just tough, man. Like, he takes charges, he fights hard, He, I mean, he's constantly, he has a high motor. Uh, both Walker and Hendricks are super impressive, but I give a slight edge to Hendricks. Yeah, and he has a, he has a wide variety, a wide range. He's like a nice button-up that you could wear with some slacks or some <laughs> jeans, you know? You can dress him up, dress him down, that kind of thing. I don't know if that works or not, but we'll say that it does. <laughs> it's a good analogy. Yeah, like, so, yeah. But I, I think another thing, too, if you could reach back and look for, like, skill sets that we want to look for on the offensive end, you want to kind of get guys who have had the ball in their hands and they've processed a lot of action in front of them. They can make decisions. They can see the board. And on defense, I think in some cases – We've talked before about like Taylor Hendricks played center a lot when he was growing up. Paolo Bencaro, another guy that played center a lot, had a lot of connectivity kind of in his brain. I think that he's going to be able to give you some of that like anticipation off ball, getting to the scene of the crime before the crime, the minority report thing before it takes place. That's a really valuable skill in a fast paced game that is really, really intensive on decision making in the NBA. And coached by Johnny Dawkins, a guy who knows how to, you know, basically get guys in the right position. So you understand what it means to be this type of player. And then you mentioned some of the comps. I mean, even like what Rui Hachimura is doing on Jokic. Yeah, I think, you know, Hendricks could be that kind of guy where he can match up with the big, but he also can get out on the perimeter if you need him. And that's a, you know, a, a really a valued skill set once you get to the playoffs. And for me, the reason why he's, you know, he's one spot ahead of Jarris Walker is because of the confidence in his jumper. He's 39% mm-hmm. from three, much better than Walker from be- behind the arc. So I think for, for Hendricks, he's somebody that you could plug him in. He can be a spot-up shooter for you. He can attack, close out, straight line, drive. He can roll to the rim. You mentioned him playing center more in high school. Good finisher around the basket. I just see him as one of those plug-and-play guys who can operate in different roles for your offense or for your defense and is going to have a long, successful NBA career. Tate, anybody come to mind to you as uh, one of the most versatile defenders in the class? Well, one of the names that I want to mention, then I'll get into my main guy, but Jalen Clark of UCLA is the best defender I saw in college basketball this year. So I wanted to say his name. I don't know if teams are, he might end up going back to UCLA, but they missed him after he got hurt. Oh, yeah. Right, right. I mean, he was the difference maker. And if they had him against Gonzaga, we might be talking about the Bruins, you know, being the national champions. I No offense to the UConn fans. I know they'll be upset about that, but that's how talented he is. But the name that comes to mind for me is a fringe guy. I think he's number 40 on your uh, KOC's big board. His name is Jordan Walsh, and uh, he's not the name that you would hear a lot when you talk about Arkansas. Obviously, there were more high-profile guys that are there. You talk about Nick Smith. You talk about Anthony Black, but Jordan Walsh was my favorite player on this team because of his competitiveness, to be quite honest with you, and I like the way that he carried himself on the court. And one specific example that I remember, he picked up Ryan Nimhard, who just transferred to Gonzaga, little brother of Andrew Nimhard. He picked him up full court when Gonzaga played Creighton, and Creighton ended up winning that game, but that changed the dynamic of that game. And I love Jordan Walsh's versatility to be able to guard a guard, to be able to guard a wing, and if he gets switched on a big, he has the competitive nature that he will be willing to match up with them. He's six foot six. I like his ability to develop into a shooter, and he shot 48% uh, day one of the combine from the three-point line. So 
Jordan Walsh is a guy that I know he might not be a flashy guy, but you're talking about a second round pick that can be really, really a value for you. Lanky, lean strength, I think, is something that you see guys that can get into traffic and, and get balls and pull them out. Like Kawhi is the highest, highest example mm-hmm. of this. I see your example, and I'll add to you another example that we watched it. together uh, in that Arkansas tournament game against Kansas. Walsh was switching him and David McCullough, another guy that I really love for Kansas, who I think could stick. It wouldn't surprise me if he sticks in the league for like 10 years. That guy is a really competitive, great player. But uh, Walsh had a couple of possessions where he was on Jalen Wilson and he switched between him and Grady Dick um, and just took them out of the game down the stretch in the second half of that game with his length. And you could tell that it really threw Jalen Wilson off in the second half of that. And uh, yeah, I think he's, his wingspan's over seven foot two. Um, he's just, he's somebody that if he can get the shooting up, he's going to be a pain of a defender. And he's a legit six, six. Like yeah. I, I think he measured in at six, six without shoes. So, I mean, this is a big kid who can make, you know, winning plays. Right. And if you ask an Arkansas fan who their favorite player was on the team from last it's year, Walsh. they'll say Walsh or yeah. Devo Davis. Right. Those are the two answers. So they're not the two guys that are higher up on the draft board. And, and with Walsh, I mean, I, I've like flirted with him as a first round pick, but what's held me back is like the, the shaky jumper. Mm-hmm. So for teams that, you know, we see him having success at the NBA draft combine, if teams are bringing him into, group workouts or individual workouts and they're like okay he's finally figured out how to become a consistent spot-up shooter like Walsh his defense is going to be enough for him to get chances into a second contract possibly a third contract it's that good on defense if the jumper is good he's going to make a lot of money absolutely <laughs> in the NBA me, and be in the be on the floor like end of games let me ask you this if we did a redraft in the in the herb jones draft would he be a first rounder would he be a friend's lottery player do you think i, I think so even though the jumper's still is streaky but he's but he's improved it enough that he's not like a total liability he can yeah. at least hit shots for you and you think walsh is 19 years old Herb was like 23 when yes, he came into that draft sure. so you think okay four years from now is walsh going to be a dependable enough shooter i think so it, is he going to are they going to bet yeah. on him probably Probably the question is how big. So, and and the thing is, when you pull up Walsh's high school video, like he can he can do a little bit off the dribble. Mm-hmm. Like there's something there. He's not just somebody like who spots up and doesn't drive the ball at all. He can attack off the bounce for you and and make the right pass or just you know throw his body into the paint. He's unafraid around the rim. I think I think there's a real chance Walsh ends up one of the major steals if he falls into the second round. Right, and they were you know giving him Shane Battier comps throughout the year. <laughs> I thought that was great, and I will say if I just close my eyes, where, what team does he end up on? He feels like a Boston Celtic. I really think <laughs> oh, so. Wow, I, mean, I feel I like see. I feel like Brad Stevens would love Jordan Walsh, and I don't know how the workout went, but I bet it went pretty well. Koc. I mean, we'll see. Early first round, lot of lot of good lot lot of good fits in that early first round this year. I mean, you get Boston at thirty five. San Antonio at 33. If they get mm. Wimby number one, a maybe. Good team. It feels like a good team yes. is going to get him. It just does. OKC at 37. Mm, a lot, lot of good fits in that. With for, his old that, teammate, Jalen Wu. I guess not his old teammate, uh, his old alma mater mate. Uh, um, absolutely. You know. <laughs> lot, lot of options there for Jordan Walsh and a lot of potential teams going for steals in the early second round. Kyle Tate, thank you for joining me. Thanks, KMC. Thanks, man. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease. 
and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.